This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Thank you, Bennett. And good morning, everybody. And thank you very much for joining us for what I hope will be a topical and interesting discussion. Um, in introducing our thinking about the relationship between exams and the curriculum, I want to focus on the way in which exams have, I think, come to define the curriculum and suggest that we need to reverse that. And in fact, it needs to be the other way around. Now, shortly before Christmas, as you may recall, the Daily Telegraph ran a series of stories about exam boards and their inset training. An undercover reporter had attended teacher training days where it appeared attendees had been given advance warnings of what questions were likely to come up and where a senior examiner and subject head for one of the boards had boasted about how easy their papers were. There was naturally a public outcry and the House of Commons Education Select Committee, already conducting an inquiry into exam boards, held a special hearing to try and shed further light on the matter. Now, why was this so disturbing? I think for all the criticism of the exam system, it is still generally accepted as fair, as providing a level playing field on which students can demonstrate their capabilities and compete. That's very important because we live, in an, live in a, increasingly in a credentialist society where all exams are high stakes. Success or failure can decisively affect a young person's life chances. Any suggestions, therefore, of shortcomings in exam security or a lack of integrity among those responsible for administering them are rightly matters of very grave public concern. However, I think the story raised for me another issue that received rather less public attention, and that was the implicit assumption that exams have become extremely predictable. Gone are the days when a conscientious student might go into the exam room after months of diligent preparation and possibly years of excellent teaching and simply find that the questions they had prepared for didn't turn up. Certainly dread of this happening was a regular feature of my own and many other people's youth, spurring one either to greater efforts to cover more of the curriculum or a resigned fatalism that one would be exposed when the day, great day came to the hazards of luck. Now, however, we quite regularly receive letters from students and sometimes even teachers complaining that the questions they prepared for have not come up as if that were not a legitimate thing to happen in an exam. Now, behind those complaints, I think, lies a depressingly instrumental view that it is not worth learning anything unless you are to be examined on it, and that an exam is not fair if it strays beyond the strict parameters of what has been covered in textbooks and lessons. In the terms of the issue we're considering today, it assumes that exams and the curriculum are coterminous, rather than recognizing that exam questions can only sample the key concepts and body of knowledge associated with a subject and do not constitute its totality. And it's the implications of that that I now wish to discuss. I think it's worth remembering that written public exams are a relatively recent phenomenon, at least in the West, and people have been educated and educated well for many hundreds of years without taking any of them. In the 19th century, however, as more of the population gained access to education, there was increasing demand for them as they were seen as a method of promoting uniform standards and codifying the curriculum. They then swept the board in the 20th century, being a feature, and to some extent, I think, organizing principle of nearly all public education systems, completing the transition that, Foucault, that led Foucault to characterize school as, I quote, a sort of apparatus of uninterrupted examination. What will happen, therefore, in the 21st century? In England, of course, we're in the middle of a national curriculum review. 
my colleague, Tim Oates, in the audience here today, who's leading the expert panel responsible for this, will no doubt be familiar with the reform cycle described by the American educationist and philosopher John Dewey at the beginning of the last century in 1901 as follows. I quote, Someone feels that the school system is falling behind the times. There are rumours of great progress in education elsewhere. Something new and important has been introduced and education is being revolutionised by it. The matter is taken up. The school board ordains that the particular new subject shall be taught. And the next year, possibly the next month, there comes an outcry that children do not write or spell or figure as they used to. I think a fairly familiar refrain. Now, early findings from the curriculum review are already out for consultation, but I think its themes would be familiar to Dewey. What is the right balance between skills and knowledge? Which subjects should be compulsory? What should be determined centrally and what locally? A curriculum's legitimacy and relevance need to be firmly grounded in local conditions, but we live in an age where the curriculum needs also to look at best international practice and to cultivate an awareness in students of the impact of globalization. The curriculum can also become, I think, and we're all familiar with this, in the words of the American education historian Herbert Klebard, an arena where ideological armies clash over the status of deeply held convictions. Not always, I think you'll agree, the most helpful basis on which to conduct discussion and arbitrate between the many and competing demands for school time. The social context for this discussion, also I think very important, is that nearly 50% of young people leaving school now go to university, so that there are in fact many more people getting degrees today than would have taken A-levels only a generation ago. Now we mirror in that, and indeed I think are slightly lagged behind, international trends. This increase in the number of people staying on to study in HE has been accompanied by several major changes to both the national curriculum and the structure of A-levels and GCSEs. In particular, the introduction of AS levels and the widespread adoption of modularization, though recently, recent policy changes are now taking us away from this. These changes, I think, reflect in a rather important way the age, age of change in which we live. The printed word is no longer the principal method of knowledge transition, transmission. Subject domains have been transformed by new discoveries, especially in the sciences, and multidisciplinary approaches in HE have become the norm rather than the exception. Also, of course, underlying all that, the economy has changed dramatically, demanding different and more flexible skills of school leavers and the graduate workforce. Now, this leads, it seems to me, to a paradox. Most of us here in this audience today are educational practitioners, and I think we're therefore familiar with the fact that successful changes in education generally take a long time to get established, to get off the ground. Now, that's sustainable when there are very low levels of change, but that hasn't, of course, been the case over the last 25 years, and that's created great scope for politicians to become involved as only they are able to deploy the resources to accelerate change and mobilize in disparate interested parties as they can provide a focus for accountability. And I think one has to, sort to in order to understand the magnitude of that change, um, reflect back on the fact that it was only as recent as 1976 when Jim Callaghan gave his... Um, famous speech at the Ruskin, and his policy director, Bernard Donoghue, recalled after that that the Department of Education, as he put in his memoirs, was deeply shocked that a prime minister should have the impertinence to trespass into its own secret garden, a complete universe away from where we are now, in a space only of 35 years. And what's that meant in practice, in particular in relation to the balance between examining and the curriculum, which is one of the things we're focusing on today? 
I think one of the major consequences has been an excessive focus on exams and examining because exam results are so easily used as instruments to measure change, to measure the velocity of change, and that has been at the expense of coherence and of the curriculum. I think we need to start thinking of education as an ecosystem, and of course this ecosystem will be balanced if these major, will, will be destroyed or damaged if these major elements of it fall out of balance. I think that lack of balance has been further aggravated also, I would suggest by a preoccupation <clears throat> We're trying to achieve a precision in measurement and at the same time to make exams accessible. And that has sometimes worked, I think, to the detriment of what is being measured. The fearsome apparatus of very detailed mark schemes and qualification and subject criteria that are a feature of public exams and A-levels help ensure fairness and provide a robust basis for calibrating levels of demand and ensuring comparability. However, and I think this is really important, they also give rise to a rather mechanistic approach to learning of the sort I mentioned earlier when I was describing those letters of complaint we got from students and teachers who thought it was unfair if they encountered things that they didn't expect to in their exams. So how do we deal with that and how do we shift the focus back from exams to the curriculum? I think the most important thing we can do, particularly in relation to A-levels, is reconnect exam boards and higher education. OCR, our UK exam board, is currently running nine subject consultative committees with representatives of HE and learned and professional societies. And that was a model we also used when we were developing the Cambridge Pre-U. I would also like to see universities and learned societies involved in monitoring standards. I think the simplest way to achieve this would be for the regulator, Ofqual, to, to convene major subject committees each autumn, which could review the previous summer's exam session and comment on whether the exams have been too easy or difficult, whether one board's paper was better than another's, and whether the content levels were right. They might also indeed look at some of the, the, the script evidence, evaluate how the, how the students were responding in each of these cases. As I said above, and I think this would be key if one were to introduce such a reform, it takes a long time for educational change to establish itself. And I think if one were to do this, one would need to give it the space. You'd need a few years to build up a stable base of praxis so that it operated as a stabilizing mechanism. So it would need not to be rushed, but I still think it would make a, a big difference. And I think it would be a much better way, ultimately, of maintaining standards than the current set of arrangements and would also offer a much more effective way, and this is the key thing, of grounding exams in the curriculum. So I want to finish um, by quoting Claude Elliott, who was the headmaster of Eton College during the Second World War. Greeting new boys in 1942, he described a remarkably reductionist view of the curriculum. You are here to be kept off the streets during your difficult years. So you will be made to work every hour God gives you. If you are dim, you will be helped over the hurdles. If you are clever, you will be, your potential will be assessed and you will be punished if you don't fulfill it. I wish you good luck. You are going to need it. Now, I think for all that we have some improvements to make on, on current arrangements, we've come quite a, a long way from, from that point. Thank you.